So this week we have some breaking news. A note about the new Omicron variant of COVID discovered in South Africa in November 2021. Now we recorded this particular episode with Melissa in early 2021, a good six months before the news broke about the new variant B11529 that later got the name Omicron. With Melissa, we talked about many things on predictions, the central topic being how she was one of the first within the business community to have predicted the coming pandemic. We covered what a foresight professional should do and how to predict the next pandemic, including some signs that she was monitoring in early to mid-2021 when she had concerns that there could be something else popping up in late 2021. We put up this episode on Monday, the 22nd of November. On Thursday, the 25th, the news broke about the variant B11529. And then a day later, WHO gave it the name Omicron. Revisiting the episode, it's startling how ever more relevant the content is. Now, normally, we only release full episodes to premium members. This particular episode was available in full for almost a week now and I communicated on social media that I'd be removing the full episode from the public feed. If you want to hear the full episode, you can subscribe to Business Games Premium on www.business-games.ai. The link is in the show notes. You should also subscribe to our free newsletter if you want to learn more about making predictions in business, business strategy, and making better decisions under uncertainty. Hello there. If you want to trial Business Games Premium for a month, for $11, you can. But hurry, the monthly pricing will disappear on Saturday, the 4th of December. Right now, you're still able to get roughly half of the experimental season for just $11 if you so desire. Just subscribe monthly and cancel after one month. But after Saturday, the 4th of December, you'd only be able to subscribe to Business Games Premium at a yearly fee of $111. So, what do you get from Business Games Premium that you're missing on the public feed? On the free feed, you would only get 75% of the interview episodes, while the premium feed contains full versions. Also, you'd get extra bonus episodes for premium subscribers only. And of course, you get human-edited transcripts of everything we produce. For $111 a year, that's a great deal for those who want to level up their strategic decision-making under uncertainty. Subscribe now at a monthly rate of just $11 to get access to half of the experimental season's worth of content or else immediately for a year at $111, which is a total saving of 16%. But hurry, the monthly trial option ends Saturday the 4th of December. And now, business games. Welcome to another edition of Business Games Podcast, where we apply game theory concepts to business to help you make better decisions under uncertainty. This is episode number four of season one, the experimental one. As the name suggests, this season is dedicated to experiments in business. Over the past few years, there has been an increase in business articles on the benefits of experimentation. Across roughly half a dozen episodes, we look at business experiments and their benefit for decision-making from different angles. We look at corporate versus SME, startup versus established, business versus academia, and so on. As we make our journey, we'll look at three broad themes. First, why now? What is it about now that, that uh, there's been an increased appreciation and kind of noise about business experiments? Second, is it all positive? What are the limits to experimentation? Otherwise, you could just A-B test your way to a lot of money. And three, where and how best to deploy experiments or experimental thinking in business? Of course, depending on the guest, we occasionally explore topics of general and uh, general decision-making. Every episode follows a similar pattern of four sections. An intro, followed by deeper dive. Because years ago I was trained to be a professor, uh, section three is filled with homework, which comes in two flavors. One, books to read, pods to listen, and that sort of stuff. And two, practices to embed in daily lives of decision-makers. So why these two things? Um, because knowledge on its own isn't enough to help achieve better decisions. We want to build muscle memory of mental practices. And finally, we close with any plug by the guest on things slash undertakings that relate to the topics discussed that could be of benefit to the audience. 
Today, we're thrilled to be joined by a serial technology entrepreneur and a professional director of some 25 plus years of experience, a futurist, a speaker, an officer of the New Zealand Order of Merit, and an all-around cool person to follow <laughs> on Twitter, Melissa Clark Reynolds. G'day. Thank you for doing this, Melissa. Thank you. I'm really excited about this. And, and as I was saying just before we started, like really good for you for getting on with this. So many people talk about getting a podcast up and going and they never do it. So I'm super excited that you got on with it. And, um, and it's a really great area for us to be exploring. Thank you. So uh, you developed a course for, actually developed a number of courses for the New Zealand Institute of Directors uh, on strategy and disruptive business models. In fact, uh, you launched a number of webinars with the IOD last year in the middle of uh, the lockdown. I might have done all of them. Uh, <laughs> I've definitely done most of them. And that's how we got to know each other. Yeah. So the thing that impressed me the most about you, and there were a few things, but you were... Um, the, the thing that impressed me the most was your foresight about the pandemic well before anybody knew what the hell was going on. Yeah. So before we get into the experimentation, could you please tell the audience how you were able to be confident about what was coming, what in your background helped you to be prepared, and if you can share, how did this probabilistic forecast help the companies that you serve on the boards of? Great. Um, look, I, I kind of, I'm lucky that um, I have what I, I describe as having a very short attention span, but it's kind of only half true. I, As per usual, the public feed contains abridged episodes. Here, we spend a good quarter of an hour getting in deep into Melissa's foresight practice and the things she's been monitoring in early to mid-2021. If you want to listen to the full episode including this and other outtakes from the public version, subscribe to Business Games Premium. The link is in the show notes. The other outtakes is the practices that Melissa suggests to do in order to improve your own forecasting ability. Okay, well, I, excellent. So let's let's let let's bring it to that then. Um, I've got this little. Uh, I I think I can connect the two things. Um, so I want to connect it to forecasting, mm -hmm. right? Why do we care about experimentation? So ultimately, we want to make better business decisions yeah. or better decisions. Period, right? Which leads to the best outcome, whatever we define as best, yeah. because that's that's context dependent. If we have perfect foresight, the decision is trivial, right? If we have no luck involved the decision is at least computable and that's well that's why chess for example yeah. is you know has 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 the best uh, strategy and it's also why uh the chess analogy for strategy is really terrible uh because there is there is perfect knowledge about the world and all the possibilities that that, that are facing us and in the real world the, there is quite a bit of randomness so in this case, we need some form of inference on the likelihood of this or that possibility. So we either have enough data slash information slash whatever you want to call it, or if not, we can experiment to sort of generate data or information about the likelihood of this or that possibility. Yeah. So if this is true, then super forecasters would need to appeal to experiments a bit less than most, right? So there is some sort of a trade-off between the the existing information uh, versus the generated the generated data. So that's that's a bit of a longer setup. But I got two questions. Great. One is, does this make sense? Yeah. And more interestingly, as a person who is, I think, in my opinion, definitely on the better side of the of the forecasting practice. Uh, how have you deployed experiments in the past to help your decision-making? Um, I want to come back to the chess thing for a second. Um, I tell you where I think the chess analogy works, and it links back to this, which is that where the chess analogy works for me is the idea of thinking three or four moves ahead. Um, and I know that tells you that I'm not a fantastic chess player because that's about as many as I can play out right? Um, 
but what I what's interesting about chess and where I agree with you completely is that you know all of the moves are prescribed so there is only even if there are feels like an infinite number of ways the game might go there is in fact a finite number of moves right whereas out in the world um, you might think that it's infinite but this is where anthropology helps me is that my experience is that people still play their business moves within the cultures that they come from or the past that they have. So let me give you something that's a real example. Um, I was concerned that one of my clients wasn't really thinking seriously enough about the kind of wildcard um, new entrants that might come into their business. So I felt like they were really good at looking at the competitors who were like them and who they went head to head with. And so I convinced them to let me do a bit of a project where I, I picked some companies and I was like, what if Amazon was to come into your industry? What would change? And then I, I also decided I would do Alibaba as well, just because they come from a different cultural background. And so the way that they might type typology or the typology of business behavior will be different. So what I did is that I, I did this, um, I immersed myself in Amazon's annual reports. Um, I decided to write myself a mock memo to the board of Amazon of what I would do next um, if, I, if I really wanted to kill this company that was my client and I was Amazon. And so there were a couple of things I came up with, including that I I recommended that they bought Whole Foods. And I recommended that they bought Whole Foods for a number of reasons. One of them is that when I immersed myself in Amazon, I realized that they were having some real difficulty growing in an online-only space. And they had started to launch into grocery. And I saw that they just didn't have the data they needed to be able to really run a grocery business the way that they were running a books business. So I hope that kind of, you can you see that? And I didn't start out as an Amazon expert. I just used this combination of, of social anthropology and maths to think about what they might do. Well, of course, nine weeks later, they did in fact buy Whole Foods. And it gave me really good pause to stop and think um, because what I did is I contrasted that with Alibaba and I looked at Alibaba and I went, you know, if Alibaba wants to win in your space, they would do a partnership with Maersk, which is a very different business strategy. And so, again, it was about 12 weeks after I wrote this, Alibaba announced that you could book a Maersk container on their site. And having continued to watch what Alibaba is doing, they've also integrated um, with a company that does freight forwarding called Freightos. Um, you can plug, they plug Freightos into their site and they've really made it easy to export anything from China to anywhere. And I realized that was their strategy. And so I know this is a kind of experimentation question, but but what it helped me to do was to look at two very different business cultures, Amazon's, which is so American, so hyper competitive, so much about rolling over the competition versus China, a Chinese strategy, which was much more about how to dominate from China. Um, so, so I saw them both as, is as much creative writing exercises as I did analytical. And what it's helped me to have more courage to do is to put myself into the shoes of competitors and think everything I might know about that culture, everything I might know about their balance sheet, what would make sense for them to do next? And then for my clients, what would make sense for them to either do preemptively or in response to that occurring? And this is kind of where the chess analogy does work. What's tricky about it is that you don't know again, but like me dealing with, you know, Trump's response to the pandemic, um, you don't know because you're not in those boardrooms what decisions they'll actually make. But I, I think that this idea of immersing ourselves, understanding what their motivations might be, 
what the dynamics in their markets might be, how they might see the world differently, allows us to come back to our own companies and perhaps experiment with our own strategy in a way that we, we haven't before. Does that help? Yeah, you've just perfectly described uh, game theory, basically. And uh, the John von Neumann, uh, who, who, who was a genius mathematician, yeah. he worked on the many different things. Uh, as, as a hobby, he just kind of invented game theory. He used exactly that type of, um, I think, analogy. Uh, but for him, and why he didn't like chess, but he liked poker. <laughs> What you said about not having a perfect information, not knowing exactly what your uh, competitors know, that's that's poker, that's not chess. And that's right. the element of luck that, uh, because on the chess, everything on the chess board, you know what the other person knows and the other person sees exactly the same stuff that you see. Yeah, cool. Whereas in, in poker, there is an element of, of luck. You don't know what hand the other person is holding. And so you need to try to figure something out, but you are inherently dealing with a probabilistic nature, not, not a deterministic nature. Well, I love that. I love when I learn stuff. That's great. Little unsponsored promotion story. I got to know Mark Ritson via Twitter a few years back. When I learned that he was offering a standalone brand management course at Melbourne Business School, I sent my then junior partner to attend in person. I had gone the following year myself. Turned out to be the last in-person course Mark taught at MBS. The rest of my firm did both Marketing Week's online mini-MBAs in marketing and brand management. When I write on the about page for this podcast, that has spent tens of thousands of dollars on executive education to get the best training in and around topics that we address here, it isn't hyperbole. Neither Mark nor Marketing Week sponsor this message, but they could, maybe they will. Regardless of this, I'll be forever promoting their mini MBAs in marketing and brand management as some of the best advanced courses in any subject that I've taken. Go check them out. Send your CFO and your CEO and send your whole marketing team to do these. It's more than worth it. P.S. I know they're targeted at marketers, but I do think that your CFO should have a really good understanding about brand management, and so should your CEO. And these courses are really that good. Yeah. So, uh, the and, and what did the client do? Uh, like, did did it help them this this insight? Did they actually did they actually do something? And you don't have to go into details, obviously, for for confidentiality reasons. But uh, it, like, what was the outcome of that? It did because it helped them to, um, you know, I, I years ago, like the whole where to play, how to win question. It helped them to think about where to play and how to win. And um, and so it's like, do you go then head to head with them in their space or do you go carve some, you know, the whole kind of blue ocean strategy thing? Do you go carve some other strategy out somewhere else? And I think what it really did help them to understand was what their core capability was, um, what their core value proposition was. And it also actually helped them, I believe, to double down on the New Zealand market and not go for global expansion, which has turned out to be a really good thing, particularly after the pandemic hit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's a watching brief. Uh, I, I've become now quite fascinated by Amazon and I, I watch them for a number of my clients now. You know, they've just launched a virtual currency into Mexico. You know, for me, that's mm -hmm. a really weak signal that I'm, I'm fascinated by. And if I try to reverse engineer it, I don't entirely know what they're up to, but I'm very interested that that's one of their experiments. Yeah, and uh, that that perfectly ties into what I wanted to talk about next, which is business model innovation. Mm. Some time ago, I came across something on Twitter, which you might have posted, and if you didn't post, it sounds like you could have posted it. Somebody, I believe somebody said that uh, in New Zealand, there are a lot of innovation funds. You know, we, we're trying to fund innovation. Yeah. So there's Gallagher Fund, whatnot. 
But they're so focused on technology yeah. when, in fact, the uh, the vast majority of successful companies, they're probably um, taking off-the-shelf technology and just innovating on the business model. Of course, in order to do that, these are very expensive experiments because effectively you need to run, you know, you almost need to set up several companies and let them uh, run in par parallel to see which one is successful. Amazon has, uh, Amazon, Apple, and uh, those guys, they, they have money to do that. Yeah. Most of us do not. So uh, lots of different things. First of all, do you agree with the with the business model innovation and, and um, that I believe that people who want to promote innovation from the New Zealand government point of view, they probably dis disregard the business model innovation side and therefore they don't fund it enough. They do. And yeah. I'll keep going. Yeah. Uh, well, and then the, the 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 other part is about this the, exactly what you said before, which is uh, uh, Amazon experiments something, and they they have a hypothesis. They might uh, you know whatever they might even think that it's twenty five percent you know possibility that it's successful. But of course, they have enough funding to try that twenty five percent bet, and if it wins, it wins big. If it doesn't, they probably haven't lost much. Yeah. How does does that make sense? And how yeah. do we? Um, yeah then encourage experimentation in that way given the resource yeah uh, scarcity um i think it's a really interesting one and i I've, I've been having discussions with both callahan and mb about this just in the last couple of weeks around agritech and around uh, and actually around manufacturing as well that um we have a very just, sorry yeah a note for the international oh. audience uh, mb is ministry of business and innovation yeah and callahan is like our Actually, I don't even know how to describe them. They're a um, they're an innovation agency who works for the government, and they they fund a number of um, science and innovation projects, and also the private sector can hire them to do projects for them. Uh, so, when am I going to start? Um, I think that we. Clayton Christensen was the, when I read his work maybe 30 years ago, and that was where I first understood that disruptive business models are the thing that really creates disruption, not technologies. And, you know, I have that ONZM, I, it, it's an award from the Queen for my services to technology. But I, I felt a slight fraud in it because when technology comes along, um, you know, I'm in my 50s. The virtual reality headsets were invented before I was born. I've been hearing about how virtual reality or augmented reality are the next big thing forever. Uh, I've spent probably five years working on blockchain and kind of walked away from it at the moment. Um, you know, I'm, I'm constantly told big data. I started working on in the 80s at university. We didn't call it big data back then. We called it data um, or data. You know, there's a lot of these things, algorithms for AI. They've been a long time coming. Um, machine learning, you know, all of that kind of techno kind of babble. But the, when you look at what has really transformed business, it's finding a business model that works. And so I know you've heard me speak before, but I, I really do believe that one of the best kind of commercializations of the 21st century is the subscription business model. And um, I really love a company called Zuora, who are people who actually make systems, software systems for subscription companies. They have a great blog, which is well worth subscribing to. Um, so you can find it really easily. Z-U-O-R-A. When I was in technology sales in the late 90s, we were pretty much selling enterprise software and you paid X million to buy the software and then you paid us so much a year in support fees. And we started to move to more of a rental model because that old model wasn't working and then we'd have to come in every three or four years and you'd have to arrange a major upgrade and um, it was just, it just wasn't a great, it was a great business model for the technology companies, but it wasn't great for the customers. And then as we started to be able to move things, whether it was in-house servers or hosted servers, 
we were able to host software in a way that we could run the upgrades without our customers having to do anything really. And that paved the way for us to move from enterprise sales of software to subscription sales. And coming back to this idea of being a futurist and seeing signals is that I found myself very interested that that subscription model, it really stayed within the software community for probably the first 20 years that it, it was popular. But I now see subscriptions for everything from clothing to tractors to the Tesla roof. Um, I have, you know, we're talking on, on a subscription platform now that it's like, I look at my credit card and probably a third of the transactions on my credit card now are subscription payments for things. So, so subscription models is, is one that I've seen be deeply disruptive and really is still, I think, got a long way to run before we're going to see the full impact of subscription. And the other business model I'm, I'm really interested in at the moment is what I call platform models or shaping models. And again, if you want to read a great blog, um, there's a blog called Stratechery, like strategic tech, Stratechery. And he writes a lot about platform models. And so platform models are those businesses where they're really connecting two markets. So Uber was connecting a market of limo drivers with a market of people who wanted rides and eventually morphed into uh, the company we know now that is about ride sharing, but that wasn't their original vision. And there are a lot of these other platform companies out there. And, and I think that's the, the biggest disruption that we're seeing. So coming back to government funding is that government doesn't really look at platforms and marketplaces as innovative. They think about widgets, they think about new water sensors or tests for things. The difficulty I see is that they then develop some kind of widget thing and then they work out a commercialization plan. And they're on a hiding to nothing because trying to build a product and then work out how to flog it is just never going to work. And the idea instead of somebody like, like Indigo Agriculture in the US I'm, I'm fascinated by, where they started as a company helping farmers to manage their carbon, but I can see that their business model is moving to being a platform that farmers and suppliers and perhaps even customers of their products can use as a marketplace. So long answer again, sorry. Um, but, but these subscription models and platform business models to me are the most disruptive things that are going on in the worlds that I hang out in. And they're the sort of thing that certainly the New Zealand government wouldn't invest in because they're looking more for inventions than true disruptions. Yeah, because inventions, I guess, are easier to, you know, quite often you can touch it or you can see it, whatever, there is a demo, right? Uh, in terms of the, I guess, business model feels fuzzier. Yeah. So, there is more uncertainty uh, slash well it feels like anybody should be able to do it right you almost you, you you don't and i think we have this we fetishize technology because it feels for most people something alien so people who can do math oh my god they're geniuses yeah. and so they must know stuff we don't and business model feels like well anybody can come up with an idea of subscription service so there, there's no value and yet when you look at the results, the as, as you said, you can actually make a case that the largest value is in those more fuzzy things and it's not in the in, in the hard tech. So it's difficult to get money from the government, but I suspect that the same logic could also apply for for boards. And I would like to tap into your governance um experience because in in my and i i was on the board of um uh not for profit uh, okay we we it was basically a daycare center but it was a sizable one yeah. uh there was not much we we could innovate um around until COVID came in which uh, you know and, and then we had to do offer 
virtual call check-ins with the kids and so on. So that's not something that you typically yeah. do in the daycare, but now, but now you do, right? Yeah. So anyway, um, I didn't, yeah, I don't have that much experience, but in my experience as a consultant working with the boards, boards are notoriously uh, risk averse and mm -hmm. quite often, but you know, for good reason, because there is, there is personal liability for the directors and anybody can get sued. So in your experience of working with like, how do you convince them to try something different to experiment because it's i suspect that sometimes it's a it's a tall order to just go and say well let's try this and if it fail well okay whatever yeah um i think there's a few things um i want to unpack a couple of answers so the first one is that my my first concern is that every time i talk to someone who's in governance they tell me they're strategic and they, it's almost like they've been taught to kind of go, governance is strategy, management is operational. Uh, but then when you poke underneath that and ask them what they think strategy is, if they did any learning about strategy at all, they learned it in the 90s. And, you know, they can trot out Porter's Five Forces and they can tell me about how to do a pestle and um and they they have all this toolkit that is pre-internet and i find that really interesting and then what they do is they they kind of confuse strategy and strategic planning so most boards in my experience think they're doing strategy but they're actually writing to-do lists and those to-do lists then drive the behavior of the organization. So the first thing that I, I have to work with often with boards is to have them understand what strategy is. And um, I read a fantastic book that I'm going to recommend called Your Strategy Needs a Strategy by Martin Reeves and a bunch of other people. And it was a life-changing book for me because what they did is coming back to this pattern recognition thing is that they found that there were five kinds of strategy out there. So I'm just going to run through them really fast because I think this is useful. The first one is classical. Now, this is the strategy that most boards I know know how to do. Um, you set an objective, you line everybody up to that objective, and you just kind of roll over the competition. You win by being big. If I look in around the world, the big global dairy players all play like this. So Danone, um, Fonterra, um, you know, Nestle and others, they win through their sheer size. And a lot of what they do is order taking. So they don't really have to create a market, say for fast moving consumable goods. The market exists, the real difficulty and the strategy is figuring out how to supply at the right price. And my concern is that most directors that I meet understand how to do that kind of strategy. They've come up through big businesses. Um, they were, had started their career in the, in the 80s and the 90s, and they really understand that. They don't realize that that strategy is not fit for most businesses today. So the, the next sort of strategy that Reeves and co talk about is called adaptive. And this is like the fast follower. Um, you just like find someone who's really good in your field. Don't worry about being the smartest person. Just be really good at learning and experimentation and copying them and trying some things out. And when it works, double down on it. And that adaptive strategy is much more successful in a modern era, particularly an internet connected one. Um, the third strategy type they found is visionary. So you've got a Steve Jobs or you're an Elon Musk or you've got a um, Anita Roddick or someone at the top. They have a very clear picture of the future. They believe they can see the future and make it. And you just basically put resources around them while they figure out how to get there. And, and then they hold on once they get there. Um, the number of companies that can do this is very, very small. And then the next one is what they call shaping companies, which I also call platform companies. And this is companies that they don't have to be the smartest people in the room. They just have to create a sandbox that other people want to come and play in. And their core culture internally is one of collaboration. And 
then finally uh, they talk about companies that are in renewal, which is what I call sort of the, oh crap, we're really in trouble moment. And they talk about how to get out of trouble. Again, my experience with most boards is they think they can grow their way out of trouble and there really is no evidence for that. And so if you really are in trouble, you have to like retrench, um, sweat your assets, kind of what I call suck it up and then figure out which of the other strategy types to go for. So I mention this because if boards can only play one way or if they've only got experience in one of those strategy types, they can't really help the CE by being like flexible and interested in which of these um, might be the right one to apply in the particular situation the company is in now. So I'll give you an example. In New Zealand, we have a, an agricultural university that has been shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And to me, it, it's in that renewal space. Um, so it's in trouble. What it needs to do is to become highly collaborative, to think about how to be a platform for New Zealand's agricultural success. And if it thought about itself that way, it could figure out a platform business model that I think would take it into the future. But instead, they're looking at these bigger um, other universities around them and they're trying to run a classical type strategy, a very um, kind of predicted, uh, can, 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 like what's the right word? Um, it's a tight strategy where they just want to set goals, uh, get the numbers in, and, and it just won't work for them. And that's where I think boards need to learn quite a lot more about strategy way before they get to experimentation. Does that make sense? Yes, yes it does. Yeah. And then when we come to experimentation, I think that once I've worked with a board and they have a better understanding of, the, of strategy, um, typically what happens is the first time I work with a board, we do come up with what's called a deliberate strategy. So again, Clayton Christensen's done a lot of research that showed that we have these deliberate strategies where we come up with um, what we think is the right way to go about things. And then the world happens around us, whether it's wild cards like cyber attacks or terror attacks or the pandemic or volcanoes or all sorts of stuff. Um, and they start to alter perhaps the way we do things. Or maybe megatrends change or um, consumer preferences change and we, we have to adapt our core strategy. So my experience is that the first time round, boards are better at doing deliberate strategy. If they have some good success at that two or three years in, then I find that they're much better able to do an agile or adaptive strategy. And I, I've just been working with a large port here in New Zealand where that's exactly what happened. Three years ago, we came up with a very deliberate strategy. We've lined all of the staff up around it. We've set the performance um, systems up around it, all of their business plans up around it, um, the reporting requirements and so on, their, all of their organisational development plans. So everything lined up around this deliberate strategy. They've really built that strategic muscle. And just a couple of weeks ago, we had a workshop and instead we were able to come at it with a very different approach. And we were able to come up with an agile strategy approach where what we were able to do was to come up with some hypotheses and we're now running some tests. So we came up with five jobs to be done that might provide areas of growth for the company. So the company will keep its deliberate strategy and keep working on that but around the edges, a small group of people are going to start testing whether or not there's an opportunity to grow into any of these five areas. And if one of them turns out to be great, that's going to be fine. And, um, and we have the board on board for four of them to fail. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If I could, so I... I could rephrase the deliberate strategy as it's well it does two things from what what I I, I understand one is that it's a hypothesis in and of itself mm -hmm. so you run with it and you you are actually testing you know yeah. what is working and the second is you're building as you said you're building the framework within which you 
can you can experiment further uh, much like a you know a scientist in a lab yeah. would actually have a lab yeah. right a, a lab and the way to uh, record the experiment such that you can turn it into data and then you can learn something from it so you need a methodology and that kind of approach in business before you can get the learnings and then feed them back and, and adapt. Yeah, and I think this is an important thing because these tests are highly disciplined. Um, and what often I think is that people, when they, they perhaps set up a hypothesis and they say they're learning, they're just doing random stuff. And I see a lot of people do retrospectives where they go, oh, yeah, we're learning from it. or um, But actually they're not because they didn't have a hypothesis in the first place. And if you don't have a hypothesis in the first place, you really don't learn. So that's why I like this port where they've got these five jobs to be done. And the hypothesis is that customers really will care about that and are willing to pay to have those problems sorted. And then you can set up tests of various different kinds in order to, to test that methodology. And this applies, like I know I'm talking here about a big corporate, but for startups, um, to me, the job of a founder of a startup is to de-risk it as quickly as possible. And the way that you de-risk it is setting up these hypotheses and testing against them. And much like in the in the large corporate, you need to think that if your hypothesis turns out to be wrong, it's not actually a failure of an experiment. Mm. It's just, you know, it's not a failure of you and it's not a failure of an experiment. Yeah. The experiment works. It's just, you know, let's move on to the next thing. And it might be a few things like, um, you know, as a founder, I've created some companies that were just too early and it was going to take, well, they took 10 years to make money. You know, that's um, sometimes what you learn in these experiments is that um, it's a brilliant idea. There's just no one willing to pay for it at the moment. And so you park those, you don't throw them out. You go, great, I'm just going to put that in the bottom drawer. I'll dust it off again later. Or maybe, you know, if you can only have smart customers, you know, your target market's quite small. So maybe there are a few of these things where you you put out some tests and then you work out what is worth double down on, doubling down on. So coming back to you know your comment earlier about say Amazon, I think Amazon and Google and others are very good at running multiple tests at once, but they have an infrastructure for doing this. Most of us don't. We can really only run one experiment at a time in most of our organizations. And I think that that's worth being realistic about at the board level that we just don't have the people power and the depth of experience and the financial resources to be running a lot of experiments at once. So I think from a board point of view, um, perhaps understanding that, let's say we have five areas that we want to test, we need to perhaps run one of those down and then run the next one down and then run the next one down and keep going until one of them is successful. Um, but trying to run five experiments at once on very different ideas, I, I just think that's beyond, I can't think of any New Zealand company that would be able to do that and do it well. No, I tend to agree, but um, at this, well, it's, it's almost you're running two actually, because you want to, unless you're in a dire situation, you actually want to have a stable business oh, yeah, I that, generates, that generates cash flow. And, and that's your, you know, whatever, that's business as usual. And then on top of that, yeah. you're trying something else. Yeah. Looking possibly for that upside or as a preemptive experiment, you know, trying to preempt a threat. Yeah. And I think that um, that idea of like sweating your assets and having your current business run as long as you possibly can run it and continuing to improve it. So you are still running experiments on your core while you're thinking about where these new frontiers might be. And so I, I like that idea of, of thinking about both bits. It's not like, um, oh, I've got the business sorted, job done, because the world around us continues to change. New products come into the market, new capabilities occur, new technologies are available. 
uh, new consumer trends come along. So even in the core, we do have to be treating the core as an experiment as well. And I'm totally with you on that. But I think it's less experimental because by then, if it's in our core, we should know how to sweat it as much as possible. Mm -hmm. We could become more efficient at end, so that yeah. it becomes almost the operational efficiency rather than a strategic experiment. Yeah. If that makes if, if that distinction is helpful. Yeah, I think it is. And then coming back, you know, um, I really like there's a, a guy Roger Martin who wrote the the books, you know, how to play, where to win. Um, he he thinks about this idea of you know you come up with a hypothesis and then you ask what would need to be true. So what would need to be true, say for uh, I don't know, for me to launch a new product. So so let's let's say for you to monetize this um, this podcast yeah. as a subscription business, you could sit down and ask yourself, what would need to be true? And then out of that, you might find where well, you need to find people who want the product, people who are willing to pay X for it. You want to know what is the thing that people value the most. And that's part of the experiment that you'll be running in this first season to go, what did people get the most value out of? You also will be thinking about experiments around your own capability. You know, what do I actually like doing? What do I want to do? Uh, do I have the infrastructure to be able to do this? Can I tap into the expertise that will allow me to do this? And then we also need to be thinking about what would need to be true in a competition type thing. You know, what would our competitors do? You know, maybe they won't release a similar offer or they'll be behind us in doing it or they'll be distracted by something else. Um, and so, and then finally, I'm, I'm interested in like, what's the capital requirement? You know, what would it cost me to do this? And what what's the investment I would need to put in? So what would need to be true? And out of those what would need to be true questions, we can think about what the obstacles might be. And then we could also design some tests to think about, you know, like that one, will people want this product or service? Well, what are the tests that I might run to discover whether or not they do or what changes we might need to make to it to make it something that they would just really like be desperate to buy? I think that's uh, a good segue into the homework that uh, we discussed. So we already set up, and by we I mean you, already set up quite a lot of different things that people could read. Yeah. Um, I will uh, summarize that in the in the show notes. Great. I would also I will send you a newsletter called Platform Chronicles, which which is co-written by um, two economists. Right. And they wrote an HBR article on data. And I know one of them because he was ages ago when I was at the Auckland University as a student, he was um, a professor there. Now he's a professor in Singapore. Uh, I, I think that could be very yeah. uh, useful. You might, I'd you love might see if you like it. So out let, let let's let's do those things if you covered everything that you wanted to cover that relates to the topic in terms of reading and so that's fine but i think what would also be helpful is uh practices and again we we we, we talked about how to approach this but what are the practices in terms of decision making monitoring things experimentation that people could take away and as a follow-up I wanted to dig a little bit maybe in deeper into your practices when you say that you're monitoring something like how does that how does that look like what can people do uh, outside of being uh, relentlessly curious because I think one of the uh, this podcast if anything it just highlights This one is longish, and there is a payoff at the end, I promise. Another story about Mark Ritson's brand management course, Jean-Claude Biver, and the Hublot brand. A brand about which I learned at Mark's Melbourne Business School course. That's the bit about Mark. Now Hublot. Jean-Claude Biver is described on Wikipedia as being successful in rejuvenating the Blancpain and Omega brands, and having single-handedly saved 
the Swiss watch industry from the quartz movement. When he became the CEO of Hublot, he emphasized the fusion of tradition and future, creating the central concept of the art of fusion as the brand DNA. Reading Hublot website. Hublot is the first brand to have dared to combine gold and rubber in the same watch, becoming a master of the art of fusion. The fusion of past and present in a futuristic watch. The fusion of traditional, modern and pioneering materials. The fusion between the craftsmanship of watchmaking and the power of an innovative design identity. They live it too. Some of their designs are truly out there. Why does this fascinate me so? The working title of this podcast and newsletter was, in fact, The Art of Fusion. To truly master something, I believe you need to be a little bit crazy, to read widely, and to get comfortable going deep into the rabbit holes. Over the past decade, I pursued both marketing and risk management projects. I mean, who does that? Is it insane? Maybe. The master of none and all that. Yet this long and winding road also let me help marketers in a bank understand risk management and help risk managers understand marketing, breaking silos a little bit and getting them to work together on solving the customer problems. Because guess what? Customers do not see your departments, nor do they care if they did see them. Jean-Claude Bivea and Dublot got that. They were able to capture the essence of combining the innovation with tradition, and they've aligned the design, manufacture, and marketing execution to all revolve around this central concept, the art of fusion. That's the skill. And here is the final key bit that relates to the core of this podcast series. Bivea didn't invent gold and rubber. He inherited it. You could say, and you'd be right, it was an accident for him. Sort of a stroke of luck. He just reinterpreted what fusion was all about. We need to be cognizant of the irreducible uncertainty, the luck element, in whatever we do in business. Our skill is then managing this uncertainty, not running away from it. things you spot either turn out to be dead ends but turn out to be trends in the future hmm. are you um you're still doing things with the iod and i am uh, i just rewrote their digital course because i thought that okay. was you know pre-digital um and so i think we're only running that once or twice this year i'm still running the disruption course i think it's only running once this year and I wrote the strategy sections in the five-day and in the one-day strategy course. So I'm enjoying teaching those. And the nice thing is now we have a, a cohort, a, a, a faculty that can teach that. So I think there's about half a dozen people who teach the strategy work now. And um, I really want to upskill our directors. You know, if they only have that kind of old-fashioned 1990s classical strategy in their toolkits, um, our our companies are in trouble and we need to have more born digital companies and also companies that can think about how to operate in the digital era and the business models for the digital era are very different than they were for you know the post of the sort of industrial era yeah i i, I agree uh the strategy um the one-day strategy course from the IOD that I've done, and I think I've done pretty much all of their courses, including then the company director's course. So that one-day strategy course was uh, atrocious. <laughs> yeah, well, it's I, gone. I, I, it, was, it, was, it was horrible. Um, the, uh, for our international audience, like what are you doing something that's, uh, that's cool subscription-based uh, that they, they could... Uh, at the moment, that, that's I, relevant to this topic. At the moment, I'm not. I do recommend following me on Twitter, and um, I am considering launching another product, which I'm working out with a friend. We're just trying to find where the exact market is for that. What I do did launch um, out of lockdown actually was a subscription signal service. So I, I do that now for a number of companies. 
where um, I put out a an in-house newsletter for them, specific for them with perhaps the top six signals I'm tracking at the moment, and then some analysis on how that signal has been developing over time and therefore what they need to look out for. And, and that's a great subscription product. And then I work on all of my clients. Um, well, 80% of my revenue comes from subscription with companies that I, I work with. Um, that other 20% comes from keynotes. And um, one of the best things about Corona really and the whole COVID-19 situation has been that I've done a lot more international keynotes. So I've, I've keynoted for um, the UK uh, farming industry. I, I got to speak at the Indian CIO conference. I've run training courses in South America on how to find signals and all of that from my study in New Zealand. So um, I'm, I'm really interested in looking for more of those opportunities to connect and to speak and to present at conferences, particularly around what signals might be relevant to their industry and what we're seeing coming next for them. And I'm really easy to find on Twitter. My handle is uh, honeybeegeek. And the reason for that is obviously I'm geeky, but Melissa is the Greek word for honeybee and I'm a beekeeper. So I'm very easy to find. Um, and if you follow me on Twitter, you'll see that I put out quite a lot of signals, mostly with food and agriculture, but I'm, um, yeah. Well, that was exactly going to be my last question: right. is how do people find you? And uh, but but yeah, Twitter. I've uh, um, I'll add your handle to the to the show notes, so it will be easy right. for the listeners to find. Hey, well, thank you so um, much. I, thank you. Yeah. Do you, uh, we we can cut now, or if do you have like another minute? Yeah. Okay. I wanted and and it it's a it's an interesting story from one of your webinars that I've uh, that, that that it's just another anecdote that I wanted you to to ask is how did you remember the one when you talked about the um, Los Angeles ports and uh, yeah. how you figured out that they they would be disrupted and and it's like to me that's a perfect encapsulation of everything that we talked about and how to connect different signals if you could just give yeah. a brief thing on that i think that Great. that would be cool um so actually one of the things i'm still doing is i've been running models uh, on when various ports around the world might collapse and it 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 didn't start as a question that any of my clients had if you think back to me talking about february 7th when we saw china run out of containers and the um doctor who whistleblower doctor die on the same day I mentioned earlier in the webinar, um, in the this conversation, that I missed just how badly the U.S. might manage um, the pandemic. When it dawned on me that it would mismanage it, there were a few things that came to mind for the from a New Zealand point of view. So we export all of our products, really, and so I was early on working with um, supply chain people to move product out of China and into the U.S. Um, because we could see that it would be disrupted in China. Then it occurred to me that we were going to start to see some real problems in ports in the US. And we we're going to see them for a few reasons. One of them is that they have a lot of low wage people working for them. And New Zealand, I live in a country with socialized medicine. So uh, the vaccine is free. Any time off that I would need if I was ill would be covered by my employer. All of my treatment and prevention would be covered by our state system. But in the US, low income people often don't have health insurance. And so I could see a situation where if I was a low income worker, um, I may not get tested because I want to be able to continue to come to work, which would increase vectors of the disease. The other one is that there's um, quite a lot of immigrant and illegal workforce work in logistics in the US. Um, and you may remember the whole kids in cages that the US was doing. And I thought about it and I thought, if I was an illegal worker and I wasn't well, would I take myself to hospital if what was a likely outcome is that my children would be taken off me? And so if I start to put some of these signals around lack of containers, around um, 
a lack of health care and then children in cages together, it became apparent to me quite quickly that we were going to see major port collapses. And in fact, we have seen those Philadelphia, New York, Los Angeles have really struggled to maintain their workforces through this pandemic. We've actually seen the same thing in the American meat industry. Um, we've had over, I think it's now over 100,000 positive cases in meat processes in the US. They don't provide health care to their workforce. Um, that's a, a recipe for people to continue to work when they're not sick and to therefore increase um, transmission of the disease. So I was sad that I was so right about this one. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, it yeah. was depressing. Yeah, and I think the and and we'll 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 leave it. Um, I think, but the very final point, back to something that you said about thinking about what your competitors would do. I think it's really important to put yourself in their shoes and not ask a question, what would I do in their shoes, but really ask a question, what would they do in their shoes? I just could not Take agree a, more. I, I, I wish yeah. I had written that down on a post-it note and put it in front of my face. <laughs> um, I think that is an incredibly useful um, insight. Yeah, don't ask what would I do in that situation. Get yourself so immersed in the way that that company thinks that you can think about what would they do next. Mm. And so, you know, it's a bit like in New Zealand, um, if a port worker was sick, they would stay home. Um, that's not the right question. You know, if I have to feed my family and I'm illegal, perhaps, and I don't have access to any health insurance, and if I go to the hospital, my kids are going to get taken off me, what is the logical thing for me to do? Well, the logical thing for me to do is to go to work. And if we can think about it in that way, we've got a much better chance, I think, of understanding, you know, human behavior is is a huge piece of this uh, foresight work. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks so much. Um, Thank you very yeah, much for listening. Really had a great time. Likewise. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Business Games, a podcast where we apply game theoretic concepts to business to help you make better decisions under uncertainty. Whether you're listening to the free or the paid version, I'd like to ask you a small favor. Go to your listening app of choice and give us a rating and a review. Thank you.